chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. For other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Today I'd like to talk about Amagasaki. There was a rail crash on a train bound for Amagasaki on the 25th of April 2005, which was a Monday, sometimes referred to as the JR Fukushima Line derailment. The train involved in the incident was a seven-car 207 series electric multiple unit, or EMU for short. It consisted of a four-car set and a three-car set coupled together. The train was an electric train running a 1.5 kV DC system. The train's designation was 5418M, and it was running as a Tanbaji rapid train with limited stops, and its driver was Rujiro Takami. Rujiro Takami was 23 years old and he'd only had 11 months' experience as a train driver. On the final half of the run with um, Amagasaki Station as the final destination where most of the passengers would disembark the train and change trains and from there head into Osaka most likely. That was where the incident occurred. In the lead-up to the incident... At 8.53am, the ATS, which stands for the Automatic Train Stop System, was activated as a result of Takami running a red light just prior to the Takarazuka station. That should have been the first sign that something wasn't quite right. Running a red light was unusual, showed a lapse of judgment or inattention. As a result, the train departed to Karazuka Station, 15 seconds late. That's just 15 seconds. At 9.11am, Kawanishi Ikeda Station, there was an influx of additional passengers that took additional time to enter the train. It was packed in pretty tight. So they had to sort of squeeze around each other and uh, in order for the doors to safely close. Why these little details are are worth noting is because in Japan they have very detailed timetables with arrivals and departures timed down to the second. There's a few countries in the world that claim that sort of second by the second precision. Another one that springs to mind is Germany, but ultimately it's a big deal for, for, for Japanese culture is punctuality. And so being seconds late, and now with the additional people getting on board, they were uh, well, nearly a minute late. We'll see in a minute. The trainer wasn't scheduled to stop at the next station, which was Kita Itami. And the train travelled past that station at 120 kilometres per hour. An alarm sounds in the driver's cab as an overspeed warning as it approaches Itami Station which is the next one down the line. The driver doesn't acknowledge the alarm or doesn't notice the alarm or chooses to ignore it. It's not clear. But as it approached the station, it was evidently beyond 
the last possible moment, the driver finally engaged the brake. But the train was had too much momentum and overshot the platform by three carriage lengths. The driver called the conductor and he indicated he would then reverse the train back onto the platform. That would consume even more time. The conductor announced that the train was reversing to the passengers in on the train. At this point, the train is now one minute and 20 seconds behind schedule. Keen to make up some time, the train jolted very hard as it left the station. The driver obviously trying to make up that lost time. The driver actually called the conductor and he asked, please... Please do not be too harsh in reporting how far he'd overshot that station because it was a requirement that it was reported. During the conversation, though, the conductor was interrupted by a passenger complaining the train was now making him late and he may miss his connection. And the conductor ended the conversation abruptly, telling the driver rather curtly that he was driving too fast and he hung up on him because the intercom between the conductor's cab at the other end of the train and the driver at the front end of the train allowed them to talk to each other. Company regulations required that the overshoot be reported immediately, as in immediately that after it happened. Although there was no way to accurately measure the distance the train overshot the platform, the conductor somewhat graciously estimated about 8 metres over. In fact, it was a lot more like 30 metres. But being somewhat kind, I suppose, but maybe not kind enough. Either way, the disciplinary action was going to be harsh for anything greater than five metres. 30 was considerably more. Now, the worst part was that the driver could hear the conductor's entire conversation over the intercom with the company's uh, controllers. So the next station, in Adara Station, the train runs express. By the time it had reached... So Sarguchi Station, it had made up 20 seconds of that lost time by travelling at its maximum speed between the two stations of nearly 120 kilometres an hour. That's, 100, that's 75 uh, miles per hour. As it approached Amagasaki Station, still trying to make up time, the train entered a sweeping right-hand bend, and that bend had a curve radius of about 304 metres, which is 1,000 foot. But it entered it at 116 kilometres per hour, and flew right off the tracks, stopping approximately 1,800 metres from its final destination. The front two carriages separated from the train and collided with an apartment building, with a further two coming off the tracks completely. Ten months before the crash, Takami had been reprimanded for overshooting a station platform by 100 metres, considerably more than on that day in the lead-up to the crash. And in the minutes leading up to the derailment, he might have been thinking of the punishment he would face and not actually focusing on driving safely. The speed limit for that bend was set to 70 kilometers an hour, which is 43 miles an hour. When the train data recorded showed that the train was traveling at 116 kilometers an hour, which is 72 miles an hour, it was clear as it entered the bend, it was going far in excess of the recommended speed limit. Investigators after the crash determined the train would have derailed if it was travelling at any speed greater than 106 kilometres an hour, which is 66 miles an hour. Four seconds prior to the derailment, 
The driver actually did hit the brake, but it was far too late and it was far too gently applied to be effective. 562 people were injured and 107 were killed, including the driver. 99 of the fatalities came from the front two carriages. So what happened? What fascinates me in particular about the Amagasaki train crash isn't about anything mechanical or technical or design related. It comes down to culture. And I don't just mean culture as in Japanese culture of punctuality. No, more so the the culture of the company, as we'll see. Obviously, speeding kills, sure. And he was desperate to make up time. That much is clear. But why so desperate? So far as the brakes went, the, there are several brakes. The service brake, which is the one you normally use to stop the train, was used in the seconds prior to the accident, but it wasn't actually utilized to its maximum force or its maximum braking capability. Clearly, there was a, a, a belief at, on some level by the driver that it would be possible to take that corner at a higher speed by only slowing it down marginally. Apparently, that was not the case. The emergency brake, oddly, you would only use in an emergency, wasn't touched. Interestingly, any use of the emergency brake has to be reported in the same fashion in which the overshooting of the previous platform had to be reported. Thorough analysis after the incident showed that there was no mechanical failure of any parts of the braking system whatsoever. Every piece of evidence suggests that the train was functioning perfectly and it was driver error. So the question then becomes, how does a driver make such a fatal error of judgment? As I said previously, in June 2004, with only three weeks of driving experience, Takami overshot a platform by 100 metres and landed himself in a re-education program for 13 days. Now, re-education programs are commonplace in Japan corporate practice, and they're considered reasonable by many, or at least they have been in the past. Nikin... Kyoku, as it is called, and it translates to day shift education. And some of the tasks are just a teeny bit menial, including weeding the the gardens, cutting the grass during the day, cleaning pigeon droppings, writing reports at a page an hour, usually about repentance. They are very, very heavily punitive. Participants are not told how long it will last, and they face financial penalties the longer the re-education continues. In December 2013, most of the official accident report had been translated into English. Five chapters of the report's seven chapters have been translated. The English excerpt from the official report has a great deal of information about the trains themselves, the control layouts, witness statements, But the section I was most interested in, section 2.5, information on the driver of the accident train, was not translated. The report itself is RA 2007-3-1, brackets EN for English, on June 28, 2007, was by the Aircraft and Railway Accidents Investigation Commission, 
which was the government commission that investigated the accident at the time. Unfortunately, as I say, this section wasn't translated into English. It can be downloaded from the Japan Transport Safety Board's website. There's a URL in the show notes if you're interested. But I did dig through the Japanese original PDF of the accident report in section 2.5 in Japanese and had that translated into English. Some things to note. There were no drugs or alcohol detected in the driver's bloodstream. There were no indications of a prior heart or brain difficulties or any other kinds of impairments to judgment. The vacation days taken by the driver did not indicate an extended period without a break in the lead-up to the accident. The driver had worked following hours and preceding days prior to the accident. Friday from 12pm to 11pm. Saturday 5.30am till 11am, returning home by approximately 10pm that night. Sunday from 12pm to 12am approximately. And the Monday morning of the accident, incident, was a 6am start. Now, it's clear just from the excerpts that from those four days that the driver's work schedules were a little bit different. In construction, we tend to break shifts with a minimum gap of eight hours with some construction sites requiring 12 Hence, you're not allowed to return to site for 12 hours after you leave. It's the responsibility of the employee to manage their own fatigue and people can be dismissed if they turn up to work if they aren't rested. Now, in this case, it's clear the driver hadn't had that much sleep in the morning of the crash. But the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Monday evening to morning gaps are only about six hours. That doesn't include travel time to and from home, meals, time to change clothes, showering, presumably, and actually getting to sleep or waking up after having been asleep. So we can't really be 100% certain, but I would expect that about four hours of sleep on those two mornings, that would be the Saturday and the Monday, was about what the driver averaged. The the driver's mobile phone browser history indicated that he was still awake at seven minutes past midnight on the morning of the crash, and that's, I suppose, hardly surprising considering what time he knocked off work. The other employees that interacted with the driver on the day reported he sounded tired, but his face didn't show that he was very tired. Now, that alone's not necessarily a great cause for concern, but at the time, well, in retrospect. However, there's no doubt it was a contributing factor to his ability to make critical decisions that morning. So far as fatigue goes, a road safety research report in 2000 concluded that being awake for between 17 to 19 hours for an average person is the equivalent of having a blood alcohol level of 0.05%. Sleep debt and minimal sleep have similar impacts, and impairing judgment as a result impairs, amplifies irrational fears and it bypasses our mind's logical reasoning. And it's the irrational fear that is the thing I want to explore the most. So again, as I say, it was driver error. And what makes it disturbing is that the causes for this seem to be quite clear. Because when there is no design flaw in the equipment, no inadequacies in the design of the railway, the rolling stock, the signaling or anything, you have to understand the human factors involved in the causality of the end result. 
the human element people just seem to gloss over. Oh, it's driver error, shrug, there's nothing we can do. And that's absolutely not true. Because he wasn't under the influence of drugs or alcohol, he was mentally stable, so he wasn't suicidal. He's a perfectly healthy young man. Nothing wrong with him, as far as anyone could tell. And perhaps the only criticism I could lay on the driver was perhaps the previous night he could have gotten some more sleep. But that's about it. We're not machines. How we treat people, how much sleep we get, how much pressure we put on other people can lead to incidents. On aeroplanes, we have a pilot and a co-pilot to operate as a check and balance for driver behavior. The All larger aircraft are, can be essentially defined as multi-crew aeroplanes. A convention on international civil aviation answers that question and by saying an aircraft required to be operated with a co-pilot as specified in the flight manual or by the air operator certificate. Most aeroplanes that carry 10 or more passengers are designed to be multi-crew aeroplanes for a multitude of cross-checking reasons. And whilst fatigue in human factors is, is of a greater concern, it seems like aircraft are sort of thought to be more prone to error than a train, which is, by comparison, a relatively simple device. It's on a set of tracks, they point forwards, away you go. Whether that's right or not... In this case, a young man is apparently healthy of reasonable mental health subjected to inhumane punishment for making mistakes. Attempting to avoid those mistakes that he was punished for and by so doing, he makes a far bigger and ultimately fatal mistake. Seemed to be so concerned about being late and being punished for it that he pushed the train faster than it could handle by design. When he realized he was going too fast around the corner, he only lightly applied the brake, not daring to touch the emergency brake. It's true that we can't be completely certain what he was thinking at the time. But the incidents that morning, running the red light, overshooting the platform, they should all have been warning signs that he was not in the right frame of mind to be operating the train. Those behaviors were not typical of him as a driver. Several weeks prior to the incident, J.R. West the company that ran that train, implemented tighter timetables with the aim of improving connections for ongoing passengers. Masataka Ide, a JR West advisor, played a major role in enforcing the, enforcing the punctuality of the company's trains and, and announced that he would resign within two months of the incident. On the 26th of December that year, Takeshi Kakeuchi officially resigned from the presidency of JR West. His successor was Masao Yamazaki, who previously served as the railway's vice president. A total of 258 staff bought. A total of 258 staff brought a lawsuit to the district court against J.R. West in 2006 for its practice of Nikken Kyoku against the staff that worked there for misdemeanors. On the 8th of July 2009, the still president, Masao Yamazaki, was charged with negligence and on that same day he announced he would resign from the president role so the company could operate normally, but he remained as a member of the board. On Wednesday, the 27th of July 2011, J.R. West was ordered to compensate train drivers and staff for forcing them to clean toilets and cut weeds as punishment for train delays and other lapses by the Osaka District Court. The compensation claim totaled 6.2 million yen, which is about 53,000 US dollars in today's currency. 
to 61 train drivers and other staff for its controversial practices. Judge Shatoshi Nakamura found JR West acted beyond the company's discretion when it ordered staff to clean toilets or cut grass and weeds, going on to say it infringed on personal rights and was illegal, ruling that it was inappropriate as a form of education. On the 11th of January 2012, Yamazaki was found not guilty of professional negligence by Judge Makoto Okada of the Kobe District Court, saying the accident was not sufficiently predictable to merit a finding of guilt. J.R. West also reduced the speed limit on that section of track as well as the bend itself, although it's worthy of note that neither of those actions would have prevented this incident. So we talk about road safety and speeding. It's a common message, and it has been for many, many years in different parts of the world. Follow the speed limit, arrive alive, better late than never. I've heard many more. Driving a vehicle with only one passenger, or five passengers, in my case personally with my family, you have to ask yourself, with every risk you consider taking, is it worth it? Is it, is it really worth it? If you consider working in a job of any mass transit device, be it a train driver, bus driver, an airline pilot, your actions impact not just your life, but the lives of all of the people in that carriage that you are driving. And no matter what a company tells you to do, you have to protect their lives as well as your own. If a company's pushing you to put performance ahead of your safety and the safety of others, then don't work for them. Work for someone else. Ultimately, in this case, fear plus fatigue equaled fatalities, and 107 people never made it to their destination at all. And if you could give those people a choice, a minute before the crash, would they have chosen to be on time, or would they have chosen their lives? If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron via Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash johnchigi, or one word. If you'd like to contribute something or anything at all, it's very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>